Good morning. Our scripture today is from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Well, we are living in difficult times. There's no doubt about it. And God willing, we're going to come through this. But when we do, we're still going to have to deal with all of the problems of this world. And one of our biggest problems in the world is polarization. Political polarization, uh, religious polarization, ethnic polarization, cultural polarization, ideological polarization. Polarization is one of the biggest problems in our world today. Here's the question. How are Christians supposed to navigate that? How does Jesus want his church to respond to this? Many people would say, well, look, you know, Christians, we got to take a stand. And, and yes, polarization is unfortunate, but if that's what it takes to protect our beliefs, our values, our way of life, then so be it. Many other people would say, you know, that's why Christians are just making the problem worse. Anytime you say you have the one true God, that you have the truth, that is automatically going to make you someone who's bigoted and oppressive. No, the only way we can really come together as a society is to put away these primitive religious belief structures and work together on the things that really matter. In this passage, God is telling his people, I don't want you to do either of those things. I actually have a third option for you. What is it? 
We're finishing a series today on the vision of Central West End Church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Today, we're looking at that last bit, the cultural renewal. What does that mean? And especially, what does it look like in the city? Because we're a church in the city. This passage we just read shows us three things about how to relate to the city. It shows us, first, how not to relate to the city. Second, God's way of relating to the city. And last, where we get the power to do it, okay? How not to relate, God's way of relating, and where we get the power to do it. And by the way, it's impossible for me to talk about this or preach about this without acknowledging the impact of Tim Keller on my life. I was a member at his church in New York City in the early 2000s, and he preached relentlessly and passionately about this. And it's that vision and this passage in particular that in many ways was one of the things that actually led me into pastoral ministry. So let's dig in. The first thing we see is how not to relate to the city. Now let's get the setting for the story. Uh, Babylon at that time was the most powerful empire in the world. This was roughly 600 BC. And what they did is they went to Israel, they destroyed Jerusalem, and then they carried the Israelites away into captivity in Babylon. Now, when Israel gets to Babylon, here they are in the midst of this incredibly pluralistic city, and they're trying to figure out how are we going to navigate this world? Because it's a place that's full of all kinds of different cultures, different gods, different beliefs, different worldviews. How are they supposed to relate? This passage is actually a letter from God to the exiles. And in this letter, God refers to two competing approaches for how to relate to the city. And the first one is in verse six. God says, multiply there and do not decrease. Now, why would he say that? Do not decrease. Here's what this means. When Babylon brought Israel there, uh, Israel came as political and military captives. But Babylon was actually very smart about how they treated their captives because one option would be they could enslave them. But if you do that, then there's always the risk of insurrection. It's kind of like the Hunger Games. If you've ever read those books or watched those movies, you know, if you're the capital and you are subjugating the outlying districts, then watch out for the Mockingjay because people might rise up against you. So instead of enslaving people, what Babylon did was they assimilated them into Babylonian culture. You actually see a really good example of this in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish teenager. They brought him to Babylon. They educated him in Babylonian ways. They, uh, they even gave him a position in the Babylonian government. The goal was to assimilate Daniel into Babylonian culture as a way of erasing his cultural and religious identity. Now, it didn't work with Daniel, but that's what they were trying to do. Assimilation basically is saying, um, hey, Israel, come on in. You can have a wonderful life here. You'll never want for anything. All you have to do is abandon your primitive, outmoded views of, of the world and adopt our enlightened views. You see, assimilation doesn't force people. It doesn't break people. It seduces people. God is saying, don't do it. But there was another way of approaching the city. And you see that also in this letter in verse eight, God says, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. 
Now, if you go back one chapter into Jeremiah 28, this is what this is talking about. There were Jewish prophets at that time with the, the exiles in Babylon. And what they were saying is, hey, in two years, God is going to destroy this evil city. And, and, and so let's not go into the city. Let's not live there. Let's set up camp on the outskirts of the city. And yes, we may have to do business with those filthy Babylonians, but we're going to hold our noses while we do it. And, and really, our main focus should be doing whatever it takes to maintain our tribe and protect ourselves, protect our group. You see, that's not assimilation. This approach is tribalism. Tribalism is, tribalism is when you retreat into your tribal bubble. It's when you disdain anyone who doesn't belong to your tribal bubble. And it's when you set up very strict boundaries around your tribal bubble. God is saying, I don't want my people to do either of those things. Now, here's why this is so important for us. You realize that our modern world is very much like ancient Babylon in that we live in a very pluralistic world. We live in a world that is filled with um, different gods, different cultures, different worldviews, different beliefs, different values. And you'll notice that in our world, we still have those same two approaches to how to relate to the world around us. So for instance, we still see tribalism in our world today. For instance, Jonathan Haidt is a professor of ethical leadership at New York University. And in one of his recent books, he talks about identity politics, and he says there are basically two different kinds. One is what we would call common humanity identity politics. That's focusing on our shared humanity. So a very good example of that would be Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, common humanity identity politics. But, Jonathan Haidt says, um, you see more and more in our culture today identity politics and movements that are based not around a common humanity, but around a common enemy common identity, uh, I, enemy identity politics. And so one very obvious example of that in our culture would be white nationalism. But another example would be cancel culture or call out culture. That's when you are shunning or shaming people online. But you also realize in our world that much of religious life in our world is a very good example of common enemy identity politics. It's tribalism, protecting our tribe, protecting our boundaries, maintaining our boundaries. God is telling his people, I don't want that um, approach to be your approach to the city. I don't want your approach to be shaped by fear or hatred of a common enemy. I don't want your motivation to be doing whatever it takes to protect the tribe and maintain the boundaries. But we also see assimilation in our world today. And, you know, here's the thing. Assimilation is always assimilation into the dominant culture. And in the cities, not so much in, in the rural uh, areas, but in the cities, the dominant culture is white, elite, educated, and secular. So, for instance, think about the institutions that are having the most impact in our culture Things like the media or the university or science or television or Hollywood or big tech. They are having an incredible influence in our culture. Now, here's the thing. You can go into those places and you can be successful, but the pressure to assimilate to modern Western secularism is enormous. You see, tribalism is all about advancing the interests of the group, but assimilation is all about advancing our own individual interests. Because assimilation says, look, leave your group behind. 
Leave your primitive religious beliefs behind. Come into the fold and we will reward you with a wonderful life. Or we could say it like this. Tribalism is all about fighting against the culture. Assimilation is about being converted by the culture. You realize, especially today, that with the advent of the internet and social media, that assimilation has never been easier. It, it's, we don't even know that it's happening to us. Our lives are filled with these screens. It, it's like an assimilation vortex. God is saying, I don't want either of those approaches to be the way that you relate to the city, not for my people, because here's the problem. Tribalism is really good at maintaining and protecting what's unique, what's distinct about the group, but it always does so at the cost of superiority and hostility towards anybody who's not a part of your group. And assimilation is really good at engaging in culture and being a part of what's going on in the world, but it always does so at the cost of sacrificing your integrity and capitulating to the dominant culture all for the sake of getting ahead in the world. Friends, God is saying to his people, I don't want either of those approaches to be your approach to the city. I have a different way for you. What is that way? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen how not to relate to the city. But secondly, God is showing us his way of relating to the city. Because what does God tell the Israelites? He says, I want you to move in there, move into the city, build houses, plant gardens, have families. In fact, he sums it up in verse 7 when he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You realize this is very, very different from either of those two other approaches. Tribalism says you should be for your group. Assimilation says you should be for yourself. But God is saying, I want you to be for the city. I want you to love the city. Now, can you imagine how this would have sounded to the Israelites? I mean, think about it. Um, Babylon came, they destroyed your homes, they destroyed your city, they murdered people, and now they've carried you away into captivity in the city. And now God is saying he has the audacity to tell them, I want you to go into that city and love that city. <laughs> what? This is especially perplexing when you understand that um, in many ways, the Bible is a tale of two cities. So for instance, uh, you always have this contrast between the earthly human city and the heavenly city of God. The earthly human city is always represented in the Bible with Babylon, and the heavenly city of God is always represented by Jerusalem. So the earthly city of Babylon is, is one that's characterized by oppression and injustice and exploitation, while the heavenly city of Jerusalem is characterized by peace and joy and justice. So throughout the Bible, you have one of the main narratives of the Bible is that one day God is going to put an end to the earthly systems of oppression and exploitation, and he's going to transform the world by establishing his heavenly city in this world. And because of that, it would be very easy for us to think, okay, if, if, if the whole goal and the whole purpose of the biblical story is that one day God is going to put an end to earthly systems of oppression and injustice, then we should be rooting for the destruction of the city. And God says, no, I don't want you to root for the destruction of the city. I want you to love the city. He's saying, I want you, my people, to be the heavenly city in the midst of the earthly city. 
He's saying, I want you to be an alternate city within the city. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See, God wants us to be an alternate city within the earthly city. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, there are many different ways of doing this, but let me mention two of the biggest, and you see them both in this passage. The first is this. uh, Being an alternate city within the earthly city means sacrificial service. So for instance, if you look once again at verse seven, when God says, seek the welfare of the city, that word welfare is really the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, Shalom is often translated peace, but shalom really means a lot more than just the absence of conflict or some kind of inner tranquility. The word shalom literally means wholeness. It means flourishing and well-being in every area of life and community. So shalom doesn't just mean spiritual wholeness. Shalom means physical wholeness. It means intellectual and emotional wholeness. It means social and racial and cultural and economic wholeness. In, In other words, the mission of God's people is to be an alternate city within the earthly city that works for the shalom of the earthly city. So for instance, one of the main ways we should be doing that is by participating in every aspect of culture. So if you look at this passage, you see God inviting the Israelites into the city. He says, I want you to be involved in architecture, in agriculture, in commerce. He he said, Daniel was invited into government, into politics. That God is saying, I don't want you to, to abandon the institutions where the culture is dominant. I want you to move into those institutions and work for their well-being. Right? And so can you imagine what this would have cost Israel to do this? I mean, Babylon destroyed your homes. They destroyed your cities. They murdered people and carried you away into captivity. To, to serve and to love this city would have, would have cost them a lot. It would have meant sacrificing the interests of their group. It would have meant sacrificing their own individual interests, all for the sake of a city that destroyed their homes and subjugated them. It would have cost them tremendously to do this. This is so sacrificial. Now, for us, what this means is that we should work as hard as we can to be as good as we can at whatever God has gifted us to be and to do. But it means that we don't do it for the sake of making a name for ourselves in this world. We don't do it for the sake of making as much money as we can. And we don't do it for the sake of making up for our insecurities and trying to feel good about ourselves. Because if we do that, then you understand we're just being exploitative and oppressive. We're we're just being a tool of the earthly city when we do that. Friends, God is saying, I want you to serve the city for the sake of the city. And that when you do that, you will be a foretaste of the heavenly city. But it means that we have to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of the city. So that's the first thing. Uh, Sacrificial service is one way of being the alternate city of God within the earthly city. But the second way is this, not just sacrificial service, but identifying the idols. And here's what I mean by this. If you think about it, when God says, seek the welfare of the city, that assumes that there are things about the city that are not the way that they should be, right? It means that we're going to have to look at the city and identify the things that are wrong and that need to be put right. So here's what this means. Identifying cultural idol means this. Every single culture has good things that it values, 
An idol is this. An idol is, is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Every culture has good things that it values. Idols is taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. So here's what this means. For instance, traditional cultures um, value the group. They value the tribe or the family. And that's a good thing. But traditional cultures also have a tendency to worship the family or the group and to squash individual autonomy and freedom. But on the other hand, if you look at modern Western culture, uh, it's the opposite. Instead of valuing the group, uh, Western culture values the individual really at the expense of everything else. Now, individuals are good things, right? Individual rights are a good thing. In fact, our modern movement of human rights, it comes directly from the biblical doctrine that every human being is created in the image of God. But in modern Western culture, we have elevated and enthroned the individual um, at the expense of everything else. So we actually consider it our moral duty to um, reject what your family or your community might say to you if it conflicts with you looking inside of your heart and being true to your authentic self. Friends, seeking the welfare of the city means identifying the idols in our culture. Now, there, here are the steps for how to do this. It begins like this. First, we have to affirm what's good. When we move into the culture, when we're in dialogue with the culture around us, it, we should never come from a place of condemnation. We should always begin with affirmation because at the heart of every cultural idol, there's something good. There's a core longing that's good. So for instance, it means affirming what's good about the group, what's good about community, or what's good about the individual. It means affirming those things because at the heart of every cultural idol, there's a core longing that's good. We have to learn how to affirm those things. But second, once we've done that, it means identifying the distortion that's at the heart of uh, the idol. Or in other words, identifying what's the ism there. Because individuals are a good thing, but individualism is an idol. Or tribes are a good thing. Family is a good thing, but tribalism is an idol. You see the same thing with materialism or consumerism. This means identifying what is that good thing that we have distorted into an ultimate thing. And by the way, the only way we can really do this successfully is by being in dialogue with other cultures, because it's very difficult for a culture to identify its own cultural distortions. Um, we're blind to it. We can't see it. We need other cultures, people outside of our culture to help us see that. That's one of the big reasons that um, our vision is to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, because we need other people to speak into our culture. And by the way, doing this means that as a church, we have to first do this to ourselves. As Christians, we have to first be able to do this to ourselves. In other words, this means that we have to be able to identify what are the ways we have been assimilated by the culture? What are the ways we have been converted by the culture? So I'll give you an example. Many Christians are familiar with this passage in Jeremiah uh, 29. And the reason we're familiar with it is because of verse 11. Very famous verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, here's the thing, because we live in a Western individualistic culture, we have a tendency to read this verse through our Western individualistic lens and think that this is talking about God's promise to bless our own individual desires, but that's not what it's talking about at all. 
This is talking about God's promise to bring the people of Israel uh, back to Jerusalem. That's what this is talking about. You see, we have to learn to identify the distortions in our own self. So that leads to the third thing. First, we affirm what's good. Second, we identify the distortions or the isms in the idol. But lastly, and only then, can we de demonstrate the futility of the idol. In other words, how this idol can't possibly fulfill the longings that we're really seeking to fulfill through this idol. And we have to go through this order. We have to begin with affirmation. We have to begin there because what we're doing is we're building relationship with people. We're building trust with people. Only once you've built relationship and trust with somebody, showing that you're loving somebody, that you're for somebody, only then can you come back through these other steps and get to the last one where you're able to actually maybe ask somebody questions like this. Hey, is unfettered sexual freedom really able to satisfy your longing for intimacy? Or to ask them, hey, is money or power really satisfying that longing you have for security? Or, hey, is... Um, is, um, is your achievement and your performance, is it really satisfying that longing that you have for meaning and significance? See, we have to go through all these steps, affirm what's good, identify distortion, and demonstrate the futility. Friends, we have to love and serve the city. And that means both sacrificial service and identifying the idols. And we need both of those things. Only if we're loving and serving people sacrificially will they ever listen to what we have to say about the idols within our culture. And that leads to our last point. We've seen uh, how not to relate to the city. We've just talked about God's way of relating to the city. But lastly, here's how we get the power to do it. Because here's the challenge. It would be easy for us to think, okay, we're going to be the ones that are going to go in there and we're going to love the city. We're, we're going to serve the city and love it sacrificially. And we're going to be the ones that are confronting uh, the idols and we're speaking truth to power. In other words, we're going to be the ones that get it. Do you see what's happening? We're slipping back into the earthly city. If we say, hey, we're not going to be like those other people. We're going to be better than them. Do you realize what's happening? It's becoming about pride. It's becoming about power. It, it's slipping into exploitation and oppression. That if, if we think that, that we just have to go in and we're going to try to be the alternate city of God within the earthly city, the problem is the earthly city is in us. But, you know, many people rightfully criticize religious people and, and especially Christians because because they see Christians who are excluding people and marginalizing people and oppressing people and harming people. So they'll say, anytime that you say, you're the one who has the truth, you're the one who has the one true God, that's automatically going to make you someone who demonizes other people and excludes people who don't believe what you believe. Now, that is very often true with traditional religion. But friends, it should never, ever be true with the gospel. Not, not if the gospel has really gotten into your heart. Why? Well, look at verse 14. This wonderful promise where God says, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. It's this wonderful promise of God that one day he's going to bring his people back from exile and into the heavenly city. But here's what's so interesting about this verse and this promise. From that point on, throughout the rest of the Bible, every time any one of the Hebrew prophets talked about this promise, it always morphed into a much larger vision 
that, that went beyond this temporal promise. It morphed into a larger vision of God's promise to one day uh, restore the whole world by bringing about the heavenly city of God within this world so that it would no longer be a place of sickness or poverty or war or violence or famine or pandemic. No more death. That it would finally be a place of peace and justice and joy. That's, that's always been the promise. But here's the challenge, and here's the real question. How is God supposed to bring us into the heavenly city while the earthly city is still in us? While we still have within us the pride, the exploitation, the oppression, the selfishness, the lust, the rebellion, the greed. How is God supposed to bring us into the heavenly city when the earthly city still remains in us? Here's how. We have to see the one who went into the ultimate exile for us. Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. And from all eternity, Jesus reigned on the throne of heaven over the heavenly kingdom, over the heavenly city with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus Christ became a human being and came to earth, he went into the ultimate exile from the heavenly city. But here's the thing. When he came here, he did not go to the earthly city. He went to the city that was supposed to be the city of God, but wasn't. He went to Jerusalem. He went to the city that was supposed to be the city of God, but still had so much of the earthly city inside of it. Jesus went to the city. He loved the city. He served the city. He fed the city. He healed the city. Jesus wept over the city. But instead of welcoming him, the, the city rejected him. They mocked him. They flogged him. They beat him. They arrested him. They spit on him. And eventually they dragged him outside of the city gates and crucified him. Friends, do you know why they crucified criminals outside of the city gates? It was a sign of, of the exile and the alienation that sin always produces. Sin always creates exile. It always creates alienation. Sin always destroys community. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of the justice and the wrath, all of the exile and the alienation that that the earthly city deserves in order to bring us into the heavenly city. Friends, only when you see what it cost Jesus to bring us into the heavenly city, only then will that root the earthly city out of your heart. Only when the gospel gets into your heart and starts becoming more and more real to you, only then will you be able to look around at all the other people in the world and never think that you're better than anybody else. Only then will you be able to look at everybody else in the world and, and not exclude them, not demonize them. Because you know that you deserve to be sent into exile, but on the cross, Jesus went into the ultimate exile to bring you into the heavenly city. Friends, when that gets real to your heart, that transforms you. When that becomes real to your heart, that transforms your relationship and the way you relate to the city and everybody else around you. You realize that's the gospel. Traditional religion says, if you live a good enough life, if you are a good enough person, then maybe if you catch him on a good day, maybe you will get God to love you and welcome you. But when you see what it cost Jesus to love you, when you see that the only reason you've been welcomed in is through the radical, costly, sacrificial love of God himself for you on the cross, only then, you see, that is an identity that, unlike anything else the world can possibly give you. That your ultimate security is not rooted in what you do. It's rooted in something that's been done for you. 
Friends, there is nothing more humbling than that, but there's also nothing more affirming than that. The only way we can go in and really love people and serve people is like this. The, we, that this means that we can go and we can love and serve people that may never believe what we believe. They may never love you. They may never even like you. They may reject you. They may even seek to do you harm, but we can love them and serve them like this because Jesus has already done all of it for us. Friends, that's the way the city of God comes, not through power and exploitation and oppression, but through a love that, that serves and, and doesn't just serve people, but dies for them. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for this promise that your goal for the world is to put an end to earthly systems of oppression and exploitation and injustice. But the way you do it is not by uh, destroying the city, but by renewing it from within. Father, the way you do it is by coming to the city and by transforming it, by dying for it. Father, we pray that the more we see that promise and the more we take that into our hearts, the more we pray that you would root the earthly city out of our heart and make us more and more citizens of your heavenly city and make us more and more a foretaste and a sign and an instrument of your heavenly city to the earthly city around us, that we would serve them sacrificially and that we would lovingly and gently uh, identify the idols of our city, that, that all of us would be at delivered from the futility of things that can never really give us what we're looking for. Lord, we love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.